setting fire to the stoner stereotype. Sparking up candid conversations with cannabis researchers, entrepreneurs, and advocates. Educator, author, and advocate Dr. Mitch Earlywine is here to tackle the burning issues. CannabisRadio.com presents a no-holds-barred platform that seeks to redefine and revolutionize the entire scope of the cannabis culture while opening the door for more to join the cannabis crusade. Please welcome the host of Burning Issues, Dr. Mitch Earlywine. Thanks for joining us on Burning Issues, where we burn away the cannabis myths with science. As many of you know, I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine, professor of psychology at the University of Albany, author of the Oxford University Press book, Understanding Marijuana, and High Times columnist. Today, we'll chat about cannabis policy with author David Bowes of the Cato Institute. We'll also have a new segment on self-compassion in the art of activism. I'm thrilled to have the Cato Institute's Executive Vice President, David Bowes, on the show today. He's a Vanderbilt grad with multiple books in print, including his latest, The Libertarian Mind, A Manifesto for Freedom. He's been at Cato since 1981, before some Burning Issues listeners were even born. He's published tons of work in hit places like Salon and the LA Times. He's been on Bill Maher's show and NPR and the illustrious Fox News, too. David, welcome to Burning Issues. Thank you. The book is excellent, so I feel like I want to kind of start broad and show how the libertarian movement sort of applies to the drug war, as well as a whole lot of other things. I know you get asked this a lot, but can you kind of give us libertarianism in a nutshell? Yeah, I do get asked that a lot. And what I like to say is libertarianism is the idea that adult individuals have the right and the responsibility to make the important decisions about their own lives. And so when you think about that principle, then it can apply to things like where do you send your kids to school and how do you save for retirement and what do you get to smoke and what do you get to drink and who can you marry? Well, so for obvious reasons, I want to jump to the drug war. I spent a lot of time trying to argue about, oh, is cannabis harmful or does it do this or does it do that? And I feel like the libertarian principles kind of sidestep all those issues. Can you walk us through the argument for personal responsibility on that? Sure. Well, I would go back to what I just said. Adult individuals have the right and the responsibility to make the important decisions about their own lives. We, each of us, are autonomous individuals. We are moral agents. Only individual moral agents make decisions. We talk about government deciding. We talk about society deciding. But it all comes down to an individual or a group of individuals make decisions. And libertarians say that each individual has the right to make the decisions about his own life, but that also involves responsibility. If I don't save for retirement, then I shouldn't expect you to come and take care of me in my retirement. If I don't bother to show up for class, then I don't get an A. That's the way responsibility works. And so if alcohol is dangerous, and of course it is, and if many drugs are dangerous, and of course they are, marijuana might be the one of which it's hardest to say, of course, it's dangerous. But all of these things have risks, and adults should be able to decide, I'm going to do this, and I understand their risks, and I'll be responsible. So everybody should listen to the science about alcohol, marijuana, or any other drug, but you should be able to make your own decision understanding that if you drink and drive, if you get addicted to a drug – 
that's your responsibility because you went into it as an autonomous, moral, acting individual. So I'm often talking to folks like Mark Kleiman who really – they want to sort of somehow legislate this safety. They don't really trust people to behave in autonomous, rational ways. For example, he wanted to propose an alcohol license and you could only buy a certain amount each year and if you had problems with it, you would turn in the license and you would pay extra taxes to handle that. It seems like a, an awful lot of extra work. I'm curious if you would have a response to that kind of idea. Well, right. I think that is very paternalistic. And the thing is, you know, mothers and fathers should be paternalistic. And when we're children, we expect our teachers also to be paternalistic in that way. But the time comes when we're 18 or 21 or whatever that we're adults and we ought to be able to stand on our own feet. Now, that doesn't mean we're atomistic individuals and we have no concern for others and that others have no concern for us. Of course we do. And we've all had the situation of saying to a family member or friend, don't you think you're getting in over your head? Don't you think you're drinking a bit too much? Drinking before noon? Do you have a problem? So there are lots of social ways of helping people regulate their lives in a way that works best for them. Where libertarians get off that train is where you start using coercion. That means forcing people through at least the threat of jail or violence, forcing people to live in the way that I think they should live. You know, I look around at my colleagues and my neighbors and, heck, I could make better decisions for them than they're making every day. But <laughs> they probably think that about me also. And so Mark Kleiman thinks that he knows how much of each drug people ought to use. I am more humble than that. I don't know what's best for everybody, and I don't want a coercive agency telling individuals how to live. If your church wants to give you advice, don't use alcohol at all. That's what some churches say, or use alcohol only in moderation. That's perfectly appropriate. If your doctor tells you, you're eating too much. You need to cut back on what you're eating. You need to not use that drug. If your parents say we're concerned about you, all of those things are within the realm of persuasion and social action, and they're all appropriate in a free society. What's not appropriate, in my view, is sending the police. And when you send a bureaucrat with a license, you are effectively sending the police to say, we're going to decide what you may do and what you may not do. I want to draw the distinction, though, I think you've emphasized in this book and in previous books, this doesn't mean they can drive drunk, they could get drunk and punch other people, that sort of thing. Right, because you are still responsible for the consequences of your decisions. You have the right and the responsibility to make decisions. And so, yes, if you drive drunk, if you get in a fight because you're drunk or hopped up on drugs, as they say, then you're responsible for what you did in that circumstance. If you steal money in order to afford your drug habit, well, then you're a thief. If you kill a rival drug dealer, then you're a murderer. Now, a systemic analysis, an economist would point out, you very rarely see liquor dealers killing each other. What you do see is people killing each other in illegal markets because if I'm a liquor dealer and I cheat some other liquor dealer, he's going to take me to court, which is a nightmare sometimes, but it doesn't involve violence. If I'm a drug dealer and I cheat another drug dealer, he can't take me to court. His only recourse is to use violence. But when you do use violence, 
American courts, libertarian courts, would hold you accountable for the violence you use. Well, see, and that opens up an interesting idea about the new cannabis market and how it ought to be regulated. Could you kind of give us a libertarian vision about how that might work? You know, some years ago when a few of us started talking about marijuana legalization, drug legalization more generally, Mayor Schmoke, people like that, Charlie Rangel, the congressman from New York City, held a hearing in the House of Representatives and he sent out a list of 30 questions. If you're in favor of legalizing drugs, answer these 30 questions like where would it be sold, who would sell it and so on. And I remember a state senator from New York, Joseph Caliber, submitted formal answers to all 30 questions and each time he said just like alcohol. So that's one way to look at it is, hey, alcohol is sold by licensed dealers and it's bottled in bond under regulation and it can't be sold to kids and you can't drive when you and all those kinds of things. A libertarian might take a somewhat more radical view. I think there are too many restrictions on the sale of alcohol. The great libertarian psychiatrist from uh, upstate New York, Thomas Zaz, used to say, not the alcohol model, the green pepper model. It's in the grocery store and you go buy it. Now, my problem with that would be, well, that makes it difficult to keep it out of the hands of children. And I do think it's legitimate to sell alcohol and other drugs in ways that restrict their sale to children. But other than that, I would say a liberal alcohol model would be the way to do it. You don't sell it to children, but it's generally available to adults who choose to purchase a drug. That's delightful. We got to take a break for our sponsors, but we're going to have more wild ideas from Cato Institute's David Bowes right after these messages. More burning issues coming up after we blaze through these words from our sponsors. MJWellness.com, the largest medical marijuana community in the world. Connect with thousands of patients, doctors, industry leaders, and businesses through shared personal experiences along our worldwide network. Discover new therapies and benefits with content tailored to you. Come grow your network on mjwellness.com. You're not alone. Your wellness matters. Learn, live, and thrive. Check out mjwellness.com today. Your connection to quality cannabis insurance services is spelled K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R. That's Karcher Insurance. We have worked with ventures like cannabis for over 60 years. We're proud to represent over 50 companies with tailor-made cannabis plans for owners just like you to insure your product, your plants, and your pursuits. K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R spells out their full-service insurance services ranging from commercial to bonds, to personal, from life to health, and more. Contact the team at KarcherInsurance.com and let our experience work for you. That's K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R Insurance.com. Contact Karen and the team at Karcher Insurance at 1-844-421-3560. That's 844-421-3560. 
Chronicling the latest cannabis industry news and headlines. Well, with four states with tax and regulate and the District of Columbia. The state of cannabis. Oh my God, it's refreshing. We have people that generally wouldn't speak on behalf of cannabis for fear of retribution, fear of losing your practices, fear of of many of those things, and and find ourselves in in a a place that we finally can. Bringing you fact-based news and views and keeping listeners on the pulse of what's happening in the industry today. The State of Cannabis. On demand anytime, only on CannabisRadio.com. Time to fan the fire on some more burning issues, only on CannabisRadio.com. And we're back. Thanks for joining us on Burning Issues. We've got Cato Institute's David Bowes, and we were actually talking about Thomas Oz's uh, green pepper model for legalization of drugs. I got to beg the question, would this apply to some other drugs, particularly if they have some sort of safe way of use? Well, yeah, I think in general, well, I'm not necessarily endorsing the green pepper model because of my concerns about access by children, but generally legally available to adults, I think, is the model for all drugs, whether it's alcohol or marijuana or cocaine or heroin. I think that's consistent with what you're saying about personal responsibility and freedom. So that's great. How did you get caught up in this philosophy yourself? Well, I kind of grew up in a family that was sort of old-fashioned Jeffersonian Democrats. We were in the South, so everybody was a Democrat, believed in the Constitution, believed in limited government. And then as I got a little older and I started reading political magazines, I noticed that among conservatives, which my parents would have called themselves, there was this tension between freedom and order. Conservatives were in favor of freedom and they were in favor of order. And a lot of times those two ideas clashed and I realized – What I thought made sense was freedom and the order that arises in a free society. I mean we do have rules in a free society. I sometimes describe them in kindergarten terms. Don't hit other people. Don't take their stuff and keep your promises. So that produces social order but it doesn't produce orders by the government. So I realized that you know I'm not a conservative like my parents. I'm a libertarian because I generally believe – Everybody should be free to make their own decisions and order will emerge from that. It will not be imposed top-down by the government. And you point out in the book that these arguments actually have a long history. This wasn't invented by Ayn Rand or Thomas Sass or anything. Is there a classic source you appreciate a lot or would recommend? Well, I wrote a, or I edited a companion book to The Libertarian Mind called The Libertarian Reader, and you can buy that too. And that has sources that go back to the Bible in which the Lord warned the people of Israel what it would be like to have a king, and also to Lao Tzu who talked about govern a great kingdom as you would cook a small fish, lightly, gently, don't overdo it. Those sources are important. I think what we would say in the modern world is probably John Locke's ideas on political freedom and Adam Smith's ideas on economic freedom are kind of the foundation of libertarianism and also the foundation of the modern world. In America and Europe and increasingly in more parts of the world, we live in a world shaped by the ideas of John Locke and Adam Smith. So in that sense, libertarians are the vanguard of the modern world. We were there earlier and and we want to keep moving in that direction. Exactly. So what I get a lot of times is folks are afraid about a free market or they feel like 
decreasing regulation is somehow going to let those who already have really trample over those who don't. Do you have a, a sense for how to talk to folks who have that feeling? Well, it's interesting. We didn't really have free markets until about 200 years ago. We talk about the Industrial Revolution. We talk about the Enlightenment, the coming of liberalism, all those things happening two, 300 years ago changed a world that was basically static. When you think about the world from the birth of Christ until the birth of Thomas Jefferson, boy, not a lot changed. Everybody's a farmer. Everybody lives by the sun. They have candles, but they don't have any electric light. And then there's this revolution. And why this revolution happened is an interesting question. But the world changed. We got an industrial revolution. Our standard of living started increasing, first in England and the United States and northern Europe and then the rest of Europe and then more parts of the world. And in the past 200 years, our whole world has been revolutionized. And I don't think anybody would say that hasn't been a good thing, that we have comfortable, longer, healthier lives than our ancestors did, and that is all a product of liberty and capitalism. So now we're arguing how much capitalism, how much regulation, and I would just say what has taken us from a world of short lifespans and backbreaking labor to the comfort and luxury and abundance that we see around us is largely unregulated capitalism. And I think if you want us to become richer than we are today, and more importantly, if you want the parts of the world like South Asia and Africa and the Arab world to become as comfortable and liberal and prosperous as the Western world is today, then you want capitalism, uh, you want free markets, and I'm in favor of free markets, not crony capitalism, not subsidies to business, not protections for business, but I think Minimal regulation is what will make our society grow faster, which is not so important for the rich but is very important for the poor in this country and other countries. I think I follow. Is there a way you could see in the U.S. and particularly maybe in this cannabis market for us to kind of take steps in that direction? Well, sure. I think in general in the United States, we ought to get rid of all forms of corporate welfare. And that ranges from the protections for the local taxi market, the taxi cartel, to getting rid of occupational licensing laws that prevent people from becoming hairdressers without getting the permission of the government, all the way up to the too-big-to-fail doctrine that guarantees that if you're a big enough bank, you can never fail and the taxpayers will bail you out. You know, if your Chinese restaurant fails, everybody will say, oh, that's too bad. But if your big bank fails, the taxpayers will step in and bail you out. That's a form of government-created inequality that I think we should stop. But in addition, I think that we should bring down tax rates. We should have less of our money going to the government to be spent on the government's behalf rather than spent by the people who earned it. We should reduce the amount of regulation. We should reduce trade restrictions. You know, we've just spent years negotiating a trade treaty with a few countries in Asia Why don't we just roll back our tariffs and quotas, let people sell things to us? And again, 
Do you know who that would really help? It's not like the rich can't afford an imported Mercedes or Porsche. It's the poor people who would like to be able to afford any car and automobile tariffs keep the prices high. Tariffs on textiles keep the price of cheap T-shirts and tennis shoes higher than it ought to be. Tariffs on food and on sugar keep the price of food higher than it ought to be. Let's just roll back all those trade regulations. Let people trade with each other. The beginning of a market like that sounds like it could be pretty messy and it would take a while to shake out. Do you have any recommendations for how to sort of endure the wild times? Oh, I don't think it would be that wild. We already have fairly low tariffs in the United States. I mean, really, if we have a 20% tariff on some product and we lower it to 10% this year and zero next year, you think there's going to be some wild west? I don't think so. We have creative destruction going on all the time. Businesses start, businesses fail. Every year in the United States, a couple million jobs get eliminated and three million jobs get created. So there's always turbulence. And if you lose your job because that Chinese restaurant is the one you were working at, then that's painful. But the result of all of that is everybody getting better jobs and a higher standard of living and more computers and more smartphones and more automobiles than we had before. So I just, I just don't see that this is any kind of wild west. Are we having a wild west right now with Uber coming in to compete with taxis? Well, the taxi monopoly thinks so, but my sense is consumers are pretty happy with being offered this new choice. So I've got a few undergrads who want to grow up and join the Cato Institute. What would you recommend? <laughs> Finish college, learn to write, and I'll tell you what, that is, I got plenty of people who come here or who apply here who have finished college and yet they can't write a coherent cover letter applying for a job. So learn to write. That should be easier than ever with everybody blogging and Facebooking and everything, but it doesn't seem to work for everybody. Learn how to think. Learn how to make an argument on paper. Get a degree. Do an internship at Cato or some other think tank. Think about a master's degree or even a PhD in a subject that you're interested in, economics, psychology, international relations, whatever, and look for an opportunity to educate yourself on some particular subject. Maybe it's labor economics. Maybe it's inequality. Maybe it's trade economics. Maybe it's the Russian-Chinese-U.S. relationships. Learn about things and learn how to make an argument about them. That's superb advice. I can't thank you enough. Really appreciate you being on the show. Our hearty burning issues. Thanks to David Bowes from the Cato Institute. More burning issues coming up after we blaze through these words from our sponsors. Gondrepreneur.com, your guide to the cannabis business world. Gondrepreneur.com is a comprehensive resource for cannabis professionals and entrepreneurs. Download the Gondrepreneur app on your smartphone or tablet to catch up on cannabis industry news, scroll through our daily job listings, and learn about successful cannabis companies, executives, and investors. Gondrepreneur.com, helping Gondrepreneurs grow. Dr. Dabber, hurry! Its temperature is shooting past 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It's burning up! I'm afraid for this little guy, it's just too late. What caused the problem? Only Dr. Dabber can maintain the perfect temperature for a smooth-tasting, slower burn. This standard vaporizer lost all of its health benefits, sending it up in smoke. So you're telling me that most vapor pens burn so hot they produce smoke, not vapor? Correct! Keep away from those standard vaporizer pens and turn to Dr. Dabber, doctor's order. Less heat, <laughs> 
more flavor. Growing green to generate more green. Hello to all you happy herbalizers, smiling trippy hippies, and everyone who believes in freedom and tolerance. This is the Grow Show, and I'm Kyle Cushman. From food to fuel, from remedy to resource. Welcome, my guest Ed Rosenthal, the guru of ganja. Let me ask you right now. I hear your lighter clicking. Are you smoking indoor or are you smoking sun grown? What am I smoking? I'm smoking concentrate. <laughs> Way to get out of the answer there. So you're truly like the, the king, right? You just have you just clap your hands and somebody brings you a bowl and you're all set, right?、Mm, I wish that were the case. <laughs> the Grow Show with Kyle Cushman only on CannabisRadio.com. Time to fan the fire on some more burning issues only on CannabisRadio.com. Welcome back to Burning Issues. I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine with our next chapter of self-compassion in the art of activism. Here's the part of our show that encourages all our listeners to take good care of themselves and each other. Today's topic is inhibition and creativity. We discussed the benefits of creative work a few weeks back. Doing something creative, practically anything, seems to improve mood and helps folks loosen up. I have a new poem at modernpoetryreview.com. If you want to check out my latest effort to have a little fun, I got a few me emails asking for more information on creativity in general. After all, if you're going to do something creative to benefit your health and well-being, you might as well make it as creative as you can. I think this is an important topic and wanted to stick to some of the lesser-known research findings rather than hash through the commonplace stuff that everyone knows. In particular. I want to talk about inhibition and creativity. Creativity is one area where inhibition is no help at all. It's the domain where all of us who can't keep our mouth shuts—you know, those of us who can't hold back a laugh or a retort—really have the advantage over the inhibited folks. For example, kids with ADHD outperform their non-ADHD peers when it comes to creativity tasks. I love this finding. I've always relished it. Go hyperactives! Some indirect effects of certain forms of altered consciousness also look like they might lead to more creativity. So let's keep these in mind. Things like meditation, even sleep deprivation, and communing with a psychoactive plant. Anything from the coffee bean to John Barleycorn in small doses might create the sort of variation we want. I'm guessing that all our listeners know a thing or two about brainstorming. If you're like me, you know it, but you don't always use it when you should. Ideally, you define some problem, then you riff on the zaniest ideas you can in an attempt to solve it. Don't let your inner critic dominate. Instead, save all the evaluation until you've generated lots and lots of ideas. Set a wild goal, like maybe 20 ideas, and try to get more and more insane with each solution. The wilder, the better. You can always go back and toss out all the unrealistic, crazy ones. But right now, crazy is the goal. Don't be afraid to be stupid. In fact, the more stupid, the better. Brainstorming sessions like this have helped people come up with creative solutions to lots of problems. One crew was asked to find the dumbest way to connect two metal wires, and somebody yelled out, "Use chewing gum!" And then a day later, they were working on one of the world's strongest glues. You can do some brainstorming work on your own. And get lots of ideas. Then join a group of folks who've done the same. Play off each other. Hey, it's fun. It's usually productive. Even bouncing it around with one other person can be a huge help. So what's up with this inhibition? 
it turns out that things that make you less inhibited also help you come up with better ideas. Inhibition is creativity's enemy. Some data suggests that listening to comedy for 10 minutes might help, and the mechanism might be decreasing inhibition. Comedy sort of lets you look at things in multiple ways. That's often how punchlines work. So hearing a bit before you start might loosen up your mind a bit. But some other oddball things also seem to help. If the problem requires creativity or insight, it might be best to try it when you're just waking up or when you're about to fall asleep. I know that sounds weird, but that's when your inhibitory powers will be lower. You'll be able to think more divergently in kind of a spontaneous, free-flowing, non-linear way. And that seems to be the style that leads to the most original ideas. What else helps? It sounds counterintuitive, but take a break for a little while. It seems to lead to more creativity. If you run through all the ideas you can, then let them incubate. Even just 10 minutes, when you come back, you'll come up with more ideas and more original ones. If you do something fun during the incubation period, it seems to work even better. Sometimes it can be hard to explain to the boss, but it's true. When I come to the lab and my grad students are tossing the Nerf ball into a hoop, they don't try to hide it. We're incubating, they say, and as long as they keep coming up with good ideas, I'm certainly not going to interfere. So do something creative as often as you can. Thanks for listening to our show here at Canvas Radio. You can also find us on iHeartRadio and iTunes. My enthusiastic thanks to producer extraordinaire Brasco and our guest, David Bowes of the Cato Institute. I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine. Follow your heart and let the data be your guide. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.